0: I may be paranoid, but I need you to drive me in the boat. Drive the boat to the shore. Please, these gays, they're trying to murder me.
1: Hey, it's Ben Bailey Smith here.
2: Oh, sorry. I was so busy laughing at, at Tonya. And Sasha Bates.
1: I love that. That's a great intro. And thank you, everybody, for swinging by to the place where we put our favorite TV characters into therapy, Sasha. Please, if you're over it now, <laughs> please explain the clip.
2: Oh, at the top. that was the lovely Tanya McQuad from The White Lotus. Mm. And that's her towards the end of season two, where she finds herself in some serious trouble. It is, and justifiably so, one of the most talked about and loved TV series of recent years.
1: Yeah, it's an incredible show. I think it was my sister who was like, you got to watch the show. Mm. I asked myself so many questions about myself yeah. and about life. And there was a point halfway through season one where I was like, this show's about everything. Absolutely everything that it means to be human. What a show. Had me on the edge of my seat, start mm. to finish. I mean, what, what, what did you make of it? Yeah. Did you like it
2: immediately? Oh. Uh, yeah, pretty much. I yeah, I think there's something about the contrast of that—the beautiful surroundings, the external gorgeousness—with the sort of the internal poison, Gross, really, yeah. and yeah, horribleness, the endless sort of questioning that they all do, and the sort of the in, there's an internal emptiness, particularly in in Tanya, but she's also a contrast because she's sort of monstrous in in many ways, and yet you can't help but love her. She's got this sort of guileless charm about her even whilst she kind of uses and abuses people yeah
1: we're in this sort of triangle of sadness succession era of mm. TV and movies where you know and the cost of living crisis inflation around the world and stuff where you see a lot of television that sort of reflects mm. gross levels of, of privilege but what struck me about the white Lotus was it was not just a like succession light or something like that it was it was way beyond that yeah know? and that there is no good or bad. There is no, like, evil
2: Mm. or
1: angelic.
2: Mm, Yeah, everyone's just trying to get by.
1: Absolutely. Mm. With whatever they have.
2: And very misguidedly in in many instances. You
1: really see it generationally as well, don't you? Because with every difficult character in The White Lotus, there's a son or a daughter or a grandson or granddaughter and you can see the effects that we often talk about on this show about what learned behaviors down. what's passed down what's genetic what's what's exper- experiential this is a bit weird because we're looking at season 2 right
2: or both series or yeah both or, yeah yeah
1: so that's one thing i should warn you about we're going to look at both which means the spoilers are kind of doubled in a way because we are we are going to look at the ending of season 2 which was probably the last thing i saw on tv that got me out of my seat. I actually leapt up (laughs) Mm. from my sofa. So if you haven't quite finished it, please do feel free, just pause this, come back later. And if you've seen it, you'll know there's going to be a lot of adult issues and probably language. And, you know, like expensive sun cream, it's going to be liberally applied throughout this episode. So please stay tuned. We're going to delve into the salty world of the White Lotus, where we will be asking, why do some people behave like big babies? And, you know, why is it more obvious in wealthy people sometimes? And how can we learn to spot terrible mistakes heading our way? Let's peel back those onion layers. It's shrink the box. Okay, recap time, guys, for those of you who might need a reminder on The White Lotus, season one and two. I'm going to give you as much as I can without just boring the pants of, off of you, okay? so Because there's a lot of plot. But we'll get into that as we go along. Let's look at the characters. Season one it starts with this body being loaded onto a plane, okay? And we rewind after that seven days earlier and meet a bunch of people arriving at a five-star Hawaii beach resort. And these people include these honeymooners, these young honeymooners, Rachel and Shane Patton. Shane in particular, <laughs> he just creates this beef immediately with the hotel manager, Armand. And then we've got the one and only Tanya McQuad, who's there to scatter her mother's ashes. And she becomes weirdly enthralled with this lady, Belinda, who runs the spa. Tanya then meets this other guest, Greg, a middle-aged guy, and transfers her attentions to him, ignoring the fact that she offered a potential business venture to poor old Belinda. Season two is all different guests, apart from Tanya McQuad, Jennifer Coolidge. And this time, they're in Sicily. And again, We open with the discovery of a dead body. Uh, We don't know the identity. We run back a week, once more. Uh, We're reintroduced to Tanya, who's now married to Greg. She arrives with her assistant, uh, a young girl called Portia. Greg leaves Tanya in Sicily, so she then befriends this guy Quentin, kind of slightly creepy, sort of rich guy, and his gay friends, who take her to this palazzo that he owns in Palermo. And... Chaos ensues. Enough of me. Sash, tell us who we've got this week.
2: Yeah, well, it is uh, Tanya McQuad, who, after she does meet Greg, she becomes Tanya McQuad Hunt. But when we first meet her, she is single, very much single and alone in all senses. I mean, you can see from the word go that she hasn't been properly parented, but we do also come to learn from what she tells us that her mother was fairly hopeless. Her dad was... Absent, um, all sorts of horrible illusions about her dad. She does sort of typify the the wealthy and entitled guest that the White Lotus attracts and pandas to.
1: Well, let's let's dig into that a little bit because we, I, I, I said at the start that there's, uh, you know, there's a reflection that some wealthy people act like big babies. Not all, I, and I, I always say myself I've been an idiot with money and without money. So, <laughs> you know. But you know, there's this suggestion that there's. There's no patience, the people want things now, it's so very demanding. Tanya definitely has that as well, she's maybe more gentle in her approach. Is there a link, do you think, between you know, extreme wealth and, and this behaviour?
2: It can manifest differently in the seriously wealthy because they can just buy what they want. But I think the tendency to use other people and to remain a big baby, it can be seen The sort of the equivalent would be somebody who haven't got the money. They're using threat in the way that the wealthy can use bribery. So I don't think it's exclusive to the wealthy. But obviously money makes it easier because you can just buy what you need and you've got less impetus to try and change because you can just throw more money at the problem.
1: But if you are lonely, you can also sort of buy your way into friendships and stuff like that too.
2: Well, you can buy yourself into relationships. relationships whether they're actually not friendships yet. is, is one, of, one of Tanya's problems, really. You is who can, yeah, who can she trust and who mm. actually likes her and who is just there mm. for the ride? As the sort of shuttle boat approaches the jetty, you've got all the staff led by Armand standing there on the jetty waiting to grinning, welcome Grinning guest, like idiots. Grinning inanely, yeah. And he does this speech that he tells one of the new staff that their role there is to treat every guest as though they're the special chosen baby child of the hotel. So he's literally articulating (laughs) that we are going to make them feel like big babies. We're going to let them. And he also says the staff mustn't show a personality. They've got to disappear behind their masks, be pleasant, be interchangeable. And he says the goal is to create for the guests an overall feeling, and I love this, an overall feeling of vagueness that can be very (laughs) satisfying where they get everything they want, even when they don't know what they want or what day it is, or where they are, or who we are, or what the fuck is going on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which kind of fits Tanya perfectly, doesn't well, it, it? Because it, yeah, it, she's, got a, she's got a way about her that is quite vague. Oh, and the, the performance from Jennifer Coolidge is off the charts. Yeah. The way she moves her body, the way she carries herself, reflects the uncertainty of everything around her and how, how she feels about herself, why she's there. Yeah, she The is. vagueness that Armand touches on, like, she's really got that.
2: She is like the walking embodiment of a big baby who can't really function on her own. And you're right, it's that sort of vagueness, that inability to be sort of tethered to the ground, that always looking to somebody else to serve her, her needs. But what is really interesting about that description that Armand gave is that he's describing actually what a very early psychoanalyst called Donald Winnicott described as like the optimal conditions for a baby's first three months of life. He calls it a state of primary maternal preoccupation, where he's saying that mums, if they're properly supported, and obviously it's only mums, but the primary caregiver can completely give themselves over to the baby. So they do get to experience that sort of Eden-like state of omnipotence, where they learn to trust in the world. They learn to trust that if they cry, yeah, they will be given food, they will be changed, they will be hugged, they will be held. But if they've never experienced it, or if they're brought out of it too abruptly or too callously, they're constantly sort of yearning to get back there. And that's sort of what Tanya's doing, I think. I don't think she was ever properly held, related to, understood, seen. And so there's a sort of crisis at the very heart of her existence. That so she, And she's always trying to get back to that Eden-like state of, of perfection, which of course she can't, but she, it makes a very insatiable And she's constantly looking to others to fill that void.
1: She, like, makes these demands, but they're almost garbled. She's she's a mumbler. Mm. She keeps her shoulders down and, you know, Mm. she's covered in all sorts of fabric and big (laughs) sunglasses. Yeah, And you don't get the sense that she has any idea what to do with these ashes that she's carrying because of... The weight of what they mean mm, yeah. to her. And she hasn't quite worked that out. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. That seeking, that yearning, that trying to to get something that she's never really had is what characterizes her and I think you're right about the ashes and I think they symbolize a lot. She's clutching the ashes to her in a way that she could never clutch her mother to her in real life and I think the ashes show that her mum probably was a sort of dry, dusty, unsatisfying, <laughs> no life about her her person and we we go on to learn a bit more about the mom, And she can't let them go because she never actually had her mum, I don't think. So, she, of course, she can't let her go because she's still trying to get her back. I don't think she's ever been looked after. So she's always looking for a mother figure to kind of hold her and, and do that early, early parenting of regulating and calming. She looks to find a mother figure in Belinda, lovely Belinda, who is the spa manager, who, who sort of acts in loco parentis. She is very maternal. She does all the things that Tanya clearly has been missing. She holds her, she chants to her, she sings to her, she says, go inside, nurture your inner child. She's really loving and she does it in a way that Tanya can kind of receive it. I mean, she gets nothing back, sadly. Tanya promises her a lot.
1: Yeah, that's a real fascinating relationship, those two women. At first, I just didn't know what was going on. Then I realised, oh my God, she needs... She needs needs someone to hold her, she needs someone to tell her everything's going to, stroke her hair and tell her everything's going to be okay. Yeah,
2: that that non-verbal way of communicating The infants need parents and caregivers, they do do a sort of baby voice and there's a reason because babies don't tune into the words obviously but they tune into the prosody and the kind of the rhythm and the tone and it's in that kind of just like hearing the rhythms of speech and and seeing the facial expressions and feeling the touch.
1: Absolutely. I think it's important that she's black as well, because I just, I got that sense that Tanya saw in her that horrible leftover in America of of massively privileged white people who've only been in, in white circles, who see a, a black person, a friendly, smiling mm-hmm. black person as kind of like Semi-subservient yeah. person who's just going to be like a bit of a mammy, you know, just going to yeah. help out and be really supportive of your story because they don't really have a story.
2: Kind of, we're, we're here for you, we have Absolutely, no means, and
1: but... I'm not suggesting by any means that the character is racist. I just think there's a little, un- I think there's a reason Belinda's yeah. Black. I don't think that was an accidental casting.
2: No, I but... think that's really interesting because there's an undertow of colonialism throughout mm. the whole thing, isn't there? I mean, yeah. Particularly in season one, I think season two is more about sexual politics. But I think season one, there is a whole kind of race, class, Something's colonialism, exploitation.
1: When she's about to scatter her mother's ashes, Tanya, on side of a boat, she makes this speech. She had no maternal skills mm. and she was always seeking male attention and she was a nymphomaniac. My mother told me I would never be a ballerina and that's when I was skinny uh and and, the, and it goes on this this speech which is hilarious but obviously like so heartbreaking
2: yeah.
1: as well and the fact that she's sharing it
2: mm. with these with complete strangers. strangers yeah yeah.
1: And I think the really annoying guy, Shane's planning a really romantic yeah. dinner with his wife and Armand's fucked him over and stuck him on yeah. the boat with this, this nut job. No,
2: uh, but she's completely oblivious. She can't get that they want this romantic evening. Nope. But she's there assuming, she even like welcomes them onto the boat as though they're there to serve her, her ashes scattering ceremony. And when she decides that it's time, she kind of pushes their table out of the way. Like she pushes them out of the way. She gets everyone involved. Involved in her drama because she can't see people... anything other than objects there to serve her and I mean the hilarious line that became a bit of a meme that these gays they're trying to murder me (laughs) I think even the fact that she sort of dehumanises this group of people who have been really nice to her I mean we discovered that it's for nefarious means but it's just like they're the gays they're just this group of people she refers to them as the the gays quite a lot yeah Yeah, I mean there's one really funny scene where she can't she forgets the name of one of them and (laughs) she says oh and and him and and, and that one or something they're just like this homogenous bunch and everybody to her is just an object to serve her they're not individuals with their own desires or needs tell us
1: about uh, her dream Tanya's dream
2: oh well yeah I mean again it's more evidence that she um, has a very conflicted relationship with her mum I mean she, she dreams that she's on this beautiful mountain in Asia and a bit like the white lotus itself she's sort of describing these sort of idyllic surroundings and then she says and my mum was there but she gave me a cyanide pill it's like oh my god did she believe her mother want, did she believe her mother wanted to kill her does she want to kill her mum there's something really toxic at the heart of these really idyllic scenarios just to go a bit theoretical for a moment is I've talked several times about this attachment theory that John Bowlby came up with and we've seen various examples of different types of attachment. and with the Geller siblings in Friends which was a, a, an episode that we did recently we saw how they have secure attachment they have grown up with an internal working model that says caregivers will be reliable That if they are distressed their caregiver will come back they will be able to soothe them And then when we looked at Beth Harmon in The Queen's Gambit, I mentioned that she was avoidantly attached. Mm. She had no blueprint for a parent that was going to be reliable, that was going to be there. So she learned there's nobody going to soothe me. I'm going to have to soothe myself. I'm going to turn to chess. I'm going to turn to um, being cold and, and cut off. And then with Shiv Roy, when we looked at the succession episode, her attachment style is disorganized, whereby your caregiver... Who's meant to soothe you is the one that also frightens you. So the fourth one, and I, I realize I'm sort of rattling through these, no, but no, I think
1: this is this is incredible. Yeah, they're so really. I was waiting for the fourth. Yeah. When I listened back to the Succession, you said uh, there's four types. Yeah. I was like, Well are they? We've only got three.
2: Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, well, I think my speculation is that Tanya has the fourth type which is called preoccupied attachment and that's when your caregiver is unreliable but in an unpredictable way so sometimes they'll be there for you and sometimes they won't so you're constantly having to work out what do I need to do to get them to pay attention and often what happens is that you become as Tanya does very hysterical very loud very clingy very needy you're always trying to say I'm over here I'm over here pay me attention and it means that somebody who's got preoccupied attachment is very insecure very anxious in their relationship is constantly trying to get that reassurance that, yes, I am here. I will come back for you. And they tend to crave intimacy, as she does. But... Remain anxious about whether romantic partners will meet their or friends will will meet their emotional needs, and are very, they're very hypervigilant to rejection. And we see that throughout with Tanya. Mm. Any hint that somebody's going to reject her, that they are not going to be there for her, she kind of chases and chases. She says it
1: explicitly to Greg mm. at one point. She You're says right. like I. I just need to let you know, like, yeah. I'm very, very difficult. This could go horribly wrong yeah. for you <laughs> if you're serious about me. I don't yeah. know if I can be serious. You know, all of that. So she lays it on the line.
2: Yeah, she actually uses I think he the word says, needy. She just
1: laughs and says, "You know, I'll be the, yeah. I'll be the judge. You know, yeah, I think I mean, you're great."
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so sad when you see where that relationship goes. I know, a shame. Um, but yeah, she can articulate. I am needy. I am clingy. This has clearly been stuff that's been thrown at her repeatedly.
1: And you get the sense she's been to therapy.
2: This is sort of the problem with people that have got all the therapy speak and they've taken it on board cognitively, and they can say, "Oh yes, I'm this or I'm that." Or they're going to say their label. I'm preoccupiedly attached, and that means means this. But knowing something yeah. is not the same. Doesn't mean you're
1: going to be able to behave no, in the No,
2: right if it was that easy, we'd all just read a self-help book and course. say, oh, I can see what I've <laughs> done, I'll just change it. The point is, is you have to re-experience it. You have to trust the person that you're with, whether that's a therapist, a caregiver, uh, a partner, to be able to hold you when you do fall apart so that you can tolerate the falling apart she can't tolerate falling apart and again i think we'll see loads more examples of of this yeah
1: i mean she does she loses it a fair bit if it wasn't so comical it'd be it'd be really sad and i I do want to ask you why let's let's play a clip first Mm -hmm. couples don't always
0: get along you knew i wasn't great at this i've been married four times four Damn I thought it was only three.
1: <laughs>
0: Tanya, four including you.
1: I
2: just love you. <laughs>
1: Tanya, Tanya, please. You're gonna wake your dress. Greg and Tanya there mm. uh, from The White Lotus season two, episode two, entitled Italian Dream written, created, and directed by Mike White, Jennifer Coolidge there as Tanya, and John Grise as Greg. We'll give you full credits for this and for all the clips used at the end of the podcast. Sasha, her behavior there, again, very childlike, really reminded me of... I mean, I don't want to call him crocodile tears. She's she's clearly upset. But the sort of forced... (laughs) really reminds me of like when my kids were little and then, like... They've fallen, but they haven't hurt themselves, but they want me to know that they're upset about the fall. So they're sort of over-exaggerating
2: the the tears. Again, it is like that sort of that attention-seeking. And she does cry exactly like a toddler because she's got stuck at various developmental phases. She's sort of, part of her is still stuck at that like infant stage that never got the kind of what she needed when she was young. And then I think there's also a part of her that's stuck at toddler stage where she can't manage her own emotions. She feels an emotion and it's overwhelming to her. It floods her nervous system. And she's never learned to to regulate that. Most of us, we learn to sort of self-regulate and we learn to self-regulate via initially being shown how to do it by a parent or a caregiver who does what we call co-regulation. It's what Belinda did to her. She held her, she sang, she rocked her to and fro, she put her to bed, she said it's going to be okay. So by Belinda staying regulated, by breathing slowly, by being grounded, gradually a child can learn to do that for for themselves. But they're too young initially. They don't know. They've got no resources. And Tanya's never learned those resources. So the minute she feels flooded with an emotion... And she's very emotional here because she's being threatened with loss and abandonment, which is her, her big fear. Instantly, she'll go into being that abandoned toddler of, I can't manage this on my own. I don't know how to do it. And she doesn't know how to do it. She's never had it modeled. What do you think she
1: expects from Greg?
2: to be her, a sort of auxiliary ego almost because she's got no self-worth, no sense of self, no healthy ego in the in the Freudian sense, as in an ego being a good thing in, in knowing yourself and having a feeling that you're worthy and that the world is is safe and, and people will be there for you. So she has to subcontract it out and have an auxiliary ego in the form of Belinda or Portia in the second season. She tries to make Portia her. It's almost like she's a pet. It's like, just sit there on the sofa <laughs> while I sleep or just wait in the bathroom while I see the clairvoyant or just hide in your room and just be there for me to pick up and put down. She needs to have someone. It's almost as though she doesn't know she exists unless somebody's there saying, yeah, I'm, I'm here with you.
1: I still just want her to win. I just cared for her so much. And yeah. I, I punched the air when she came back.
2: There is a charm to her, it's as there bit, is to, to toddlers in a, in a way. Yeah, there yeah. is this sort of challenge. <laughs> yeah. And that part of you wants and part of you is willing her to have have a good relationship because she never has and she's so unhappy and she's so lonely and she just has no capacity to make a relationship. She keeps trying, but she does it by throwing money or histrionics at the problem because mm. she can't relate. She doesn't believe that anybody will be there reliably. So she thinks she has to act out or buy people mm. to get them to stay.
1: Bless her. Well, after the break, we're going to look at why the gays appeal to Tanya's a fantasy world. And also why fairy tales don't always have happy endings. And how we can learn to spot red flags. So we will catch you after these messages, unless you're a subscriber to The Take, in which case we'll be back faster than I can smash a test of the vase. Keeps bloody staring at me. Why? This show is supported by BetterHelp. Uh, now, sometimes you're carrying a weight on your shoulders, but you can't find the right way to open up about it and maybe offload a bit to others. If we keep things bottled up, it can really affect us in a bad way. And therapy is a safe and anonymous place to air whatever's been troubling you. Uh, and I know this personally. It always feels better just to speak your truth. It, it, honestly, you genuinely feel lighter. And the moan can tell you all about feeling light or heavy. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, suited to your schedule. Fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash shrinkthebox today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash shrinkthebox. Get an inside look at Hollywood with Michael Rosenbaum.
0: we wanted to get Keanu Reeves on the show for a long time. Mm-hmm. Let's get inside of Dog Star. You toured with Bon, bon Jovi. Bon Jovi. It's like, were you crawling out of your skin with nerves? But you know, you're the opener before the opener. And... Nerves are different than fear. Nerves are more like excitement and Well, my nerves like are fear. Okay, that's Rob. different. My, <laughs> my nerves are fear, too. Fred, what are your nerves? I just pretended there was no cameras there.
1: <laughs> inside of you with Michael Rosenbaum. Wherever you listen. all right and we are right back so sash i think you got a clip for us actually let's let's take a listen to tanya and greg
0: my fantasy day in italy is well first i want to look just like monica viti and and then this man in a very slim fitting suit he comes over and he lights my cigarette and it tastes really good and then takes me for a drive on his Vespa. You want me to rent a Vespa? Then, at sunset, we go down very close to the sea to one of those really romantic spots, and then we, we drink lots of apertifos. and we eat big plates of pasta with giant clams, and we're just really chic and happy, and And we're uh, beautiful. All right. Sounds good to me.
1: Really? Sure. Whatever you want. It's your day to shine. That sounds good to me too, Greg. I mean, (laughs) apart from the giant clams, that (laughs) sounds like an awesome day. I mean Sash, what is what is your problem with that?
2: she doesn't seem to be able to distinguish between what is fantasy and what is reality. Again, if I talk about that quote of Armand's right at the beginning about creating a state of Eden-like perfection where you don't even know what your need is before it's responded to... Her desire to endlessly find this kind of state of Eden where nothing bad ever happens, nothing goes wrong, it's preventing her staying in the real world. I talked before about how in infant developmental stages, the first few months is just like that. The child learns that it has a state of omnipotence. What has to happen is the primary caregiver has to eventually kind of dissuade the child from this state of illusion because the world isn't like that. Nobody can live like that. So a good caregiver will gradually get the child to learn to wait a little bit longer, to understand that when they cry, it's not going to immediately happen. And that is a natural part of development. So the illusion gradually and gently and kindly becomes a state of disillusionment where, oh, okay, no, I also have to, something has to come from me here. I have to tolerate the waiting. I have to tolerate the fact that everyone in the world isn't there just to serve my needs.
1: That's a scary thing for love. Really beings, right?
2: scary, really scary. Which is why good parents they will do that naturally. This isn't. Most people don't think about this. They don't start to think. Oh, actually, I'm going to... today's
1: gonna, the day. Yes. going To tell them they're screwed. They're on their own.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's a very natural progression. Also, there's a need in a, in the child to want to kind of become more autonomous and become more independent. And that's not just with the infant. That's you know you see. it particularly in teenagers. And there's loads of developmental stages where the child has to learn to be a bit more independent and a bit more autonomous. If they're lucky, they do that knowing, yeah, this is going to be painful, but mum, dad, whoever is their reliable caregiver is going to be there waiting for me and they'll pick me up when I fall and they'll soothe me when I, I fall. But I can test the waters knowing that it will be difficult. She can't test the waters because she can't tolerate the discomfort. So the minute she feels flooded by those emotions of somebody's going to leave me, she's got absolutely no way to to self-regulate. So she's always looking to stay within that fantasy. And her whole life's about staying in the fantasy. The Vesper Day is just another example of her saying, no, I want to live in a fairy tale. I don't, the the real world's too scary. It's too frightening. I can't cope with it.
1: That is... A straight-up security thing.
2: She's got no inner resources. She's got no inner scaffolding to help her withstand any kind of loss any kind of abandonment even if it's just for a day I mean when she first met Greg like it was endlessly well when are you going to text me and <laughs> shall I move to Aspen to be near you and um, <laughs>
1: just what you want to hear on the first day.
2: yeah yeah <laughs> and she sort of even says well I'm just going to hang out in my room and wait for you to text and, and she can't even do that she goes and chases him down to the swimming pool in a sort of spangly dress and she's kind of like hiding behind a curtain <laughs> while he's having a swim she's got no capacity to, to be alone
1: do you think she pines after a lost childhood or a return to maybe the last time she felt like she was just a little kid Mm -hmm. who you know everything's taken care
2: of yeah, I don't think she ever felt that, though. Oh, I but think maybe she the, never yeah, felt Yeah, I think that's the problem. If you've never had it, you're constantly seeking it. Whereas at least if you've had it, you, you've got a sort of in, inner stability. And you've learnt that, well, it's not there right now, but I know what that feels yeah, like. You remember it. Yeah.
1: So instead she play acts. She, mm. she pretends to be childlike. Please look after this bear kind of thing.
2: Yes. <laughs> around her neck.
0: Yeah. Poor When I see you, I I see a younger version of me. You know, when I was a little girl, my mother used to dress me up like a little doll. And I was always a little doll, waiting for someone to play with me. You know, when you're empty inside, and you have no direction, you'll end up in some crazy places, right? But you'll still be lost. What are you trying to say? Like, get your shit together,
2: Portia. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh man.
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, she's projecting her own stuff onto Portia. She knows that she's lost, absolutely. but she can't do it. She can't. She can't actually take her own advice. Yeah.
1: Another another example of how self-aware she actually can be in in various moments. And mm-hmm. you're like, yes, yes, do something mm-hmm. about it. And then you're like, she can't follow through. It's never gonna happen. No. People like that are by their very nature, innately vulnerable. And what we see as season two develops is that she can be easily manipulated. Mm. And when we meet slimy Tom Hollander, (laughs) no offense, Tom, just very good at it, playing Quentin, we get that sense straight away that Quentin's got a good steer Mm. from our very own Greg Mm -hmm. on how you go about dealing with Tanya McQuad.
2: Yeah, this is what she's been waiting her life to, to hear, really, that she matters. And she's got all these gays, as she calls them, paying her attention and lavishing her with sort of food and wine and palazzos and taking her to the opera. And I mean, it's another fantasy, that whole night at the opera thing. Oh, yeah. my gosh. her outfit.
1: Oh, it's incredible.
2: And wanting to believe the woman in the next box is the Queen of Sicily. It's and she, Doing she a just, little wave. Yeah.
1: They're playing her own sort of... Minor prejudices again, I think, what I read into it was that thing of like, how some people might think, oh, a bunch of gay men around a, a glamorous woman like that, they're going to treat me like mm-hmm. Barbara Streisand, how yeah. they see Kylie Minogue, yes. you know, they'll, they'll put me on a pedestal like like those mm-hmm. two. And I think she slots right into that role to have this amazing sort of queen-like yeah. female <laughs> to lead them yeah. in gay town. <laughs> you know, yeah. She's got, got these all backwards ideas, which I think they also spot and
2: play yeah. on. She's going to willfully not listen to anything that doesn't suit her, which is exactly what happened with the, the clairvoyant. When Greg leaves and she's in another sort of panicked, I can't cope, she immediately says, get me a clairvoyant, get yeah. me a fortune teller. Next step
1: from the spa. Yeah, you know, yeah. Ch- chanting, right yes. now, a clairvoyant. Yeah, you
2: know, I need somebody to Reiki, tell me. Then
1: it will be, you know, whatever's next.
2: <laughs> yeah, but what's interesting with the clairvoyant is that she literally does exactly that. She wants her to tell it it's all going to be okay. And the clairvoyant says it's not going to be. And Tanya goes mad. She can't cope with somebody saying, get your shit together, like she said to Bushy. She can't cope with that. And she doesn't want to hear. She's willfully blind. And I think it's really interesting because. Clairvoyance obviously means clear sight that's what you need really you need clear sight for awareness she doesn't want to know clear sight she wants to go back into the fantasy world she just wants to be told it's all going to be okay it's
1: one of the things i suppose that separates us from like other animals mm. and stuff that we can have these flights of fancy mm. how can we know when a fantasy is is helpful and healthy and when it's dangerous
2: everything has its shadow side mm. everything if something looks too good to be true It is. Mm -hmm. Everything has a shadow side, apart from Peter Pan, who didn't have a shadow and he wanted to stay childlike. We're talking about fairy tales and that's exactly what we see. She's wanting to stay a child or she's not able to move on from being a child because nobody helped her move through those developmental phases and she hasn't got the maturity of nervous system or neuronal pathways. They've never developed enough for her to manage the pain that comes up from saying, this is real and it's not as good as I want it to be.
1: Earlier we said we talk about how we can begin to spot red flags hurtling towards us. Let's get a bit Mm -hmm. deeper into that
2: saying to the fortune teller no I'm not going to hear this is basically what she's done with every relationship so you have to understand that Nobody's going to hand this to you on a, on a plate. So all the little red flags that she's been shown about Greg's shadiness, about why he wanted her to go to Sicily and then disappeared, the kind of the mumbled conversations behind the bathroom door. You know, there's so many things that happen to her that she just ignores because she's she wants to believe in the fantasy. There's no happy ever after. There's a happy ever after that that involves working.
1: She's so isolated Mm. you know even when she's around people people who appear to be close to her she's She's yeah. so on her own.
2: Yeah, it's because she sees them as objects. She doesn't know how to relate to them mm. as people. There's a really interesting scene where Portia starts to open up to her. She starts to say, "Oh, I've met this guy, Albie, but he seems like you know a nice guy, but I'm not sure." And Tony just talks right over mm-hmm. her in the same way that she couldn't get that Belinda was upset that in, yeah. the, in season one she just says to Belinda, "Oh no, sorry, I'm not going to do this after all," without having any notion that that's going to impact on Belinda because Belinda's not real to her. Mm. But it's because Nobody ever actually paid her attention. Yeah. So, um, And
1: ironically, it's what fucks her, because yeah. if if she became real genuine friends with Belinda, mm. if she became real genuine friends with Portia. Yeah. By season two, she would have these two best friends, they'd be three girls going through this experience together. And when Greg's whispering in his hotel room, she'd say, oh, this happened. And Belinda or Portia would say, that's fucked up. Yeah. And up until her life is actually directly threatened, she's never had to challenge herself. She's never had to ask herself those big questions because Mm -hmm. she's always had people have just gone, yep, you are a princess. Yes, you are amazing.
2: Yeah.
1: Please keep tipping me.
2: Yeah, and she's (laughs) paid them to say that. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. She's just thrown money at the problem. Even at the end when it's obvious that Greg paid these guys to kill her, and she's come out, you know, shooting. Still, her question is, is Greg having an affair? I mean, she's still like, tell me I'm lovable. Oh. Tell me he's there for me. It's like, wake up and smell the coffee, darling.
1: Did you think she was going to get out of there? I thought she was going to get out of there. I
2: kind of hoped, yeah. yeah. But I, I mean,
1: I definitely wanted her to, yeah. but I also thought she's going to get out of there. I couldn't believe it when she came out guns blazing. I was like, oh my God, she's going to be okay. She <laughs> yeah. needs to get to the lifeboat.
2: Yeah. And it would have been very satisfying, but also sort of unsatisfying. Yeah, because in a way.
1: what what we need to know, or perhaps what Mike White wants us to know, is if you continue down this path
2: mm.
1: of, you know, not confronting these profound shortcomings,
2: yeah.
1: then there is only one future for you and I think it's telling that she blazes her way out of this situation mm. and it's like oh my god it's like watching uh, Batman or something <laughs> it's, it's incredible <laughs> I'm cheering her on then all she needs to do is just get on this lifeboat yeah and still you see the poor decision making mm-hmm. I mean, what she's thinking with that jump.
2: No, I know. Uh, God every, only
1: knows. Uh, I mean, just climb time. down, yeah. you know, get a rope, do something. <laughs> that assumption that s- some other part of the universe will take care of her is yeah. there in the choice that kills her.
2: Yeah, absolutely. She's just like,
1: oh, I'll just step off the boat I and know. then I'll land in the lifeboat.
2: I know. The whole way through both seasons, she's veered from that omnipotence of give me what I need because I'll give you the money to do it and that helpless I can't actually manage the most basic of relationships I can't manage um, kind of staying alive really
1: mm. Alright, thank you to everybody who's sent in emails again this week do keep sending your suggestions for Sash to psychoanalyze but also your, your comments, your ideas, your own theories about some of the characters that we've spoken about, things that we may have missed, let us know at shrink the box at something else.com that shrink the box at something without the g else.com. Uh following on from our Jack Bauer 24 conversation this one is from Corin oh my god this is from Corin this is my friend Corin this is the last skeptic this is a guy I've known for for many many years he told me he loved the show and he's been desperate to write okay <laughs> So here we go. He also told me he he spent his whole life wanting to say the phrase long-time listener, first-time caller, (laughs)
2: which is
1: starting the email with. uh, How's it going, Corinne? Good to hear from you, man. He says, uh, goes without saying, and I will tell Ben weekly that I'm loving the podcast. I'm sure a few people have suggested the perennially endangered counterterrorism counter-terrorism agent Jack Bauer from the Adrenaline Heavy Show 24. I recently did a full rewatch and would love to get Jack Bauer on the couch. Putting it simply, the guy's gone through a lot. With over 300 on-screen kills, his wife being murdered, his daughter perpetually kidnapped, (laughs) surviving plane, helicopter and car crashes, all his mates getting the axe or betraying him, his own dad being the worst villain alive, him being kidnapped and tortured, even got plutonium poisoned and had to have a full-on bone marrow transplant. (laughs) On top of that, we never see him getting a moment to have a piss or enjoy a nice glass of water. When does he eat? Is there catering at CTU? (laughs) There's one final moment of one season where he sits alone and starts crying. And there's little bits around the seasons that kind of show the processing of the trauma. But in general, I guess I'd just like to know why he carries on. Mm. (laughs) I'd have just gone to bed for a bit, to be honest, mate. (laughs) From Corinne. That's superb. Nice Mm -hmm. one for the email. And here's one from Catriona. Greetings, TV's BBS and Sasha from Melbourne, Australia. Mm -hmm. As someone who has just completed my own therapy journey following a breakdown last year, I wanted to say thank you for your pod. Every episode, regardless of whether I've seen the show or know the character, has resonated with me on some level and given me insight into some of my own shit. She's put a (laughs) laughing emoji there and I appreciate that a lot, Kat, because I feel the same. She says, my breakdown was brought about by burnout, so in that vein... Could I recommend putting Rachel Fleischman from Fleischman is in Mm. Trouble on your couch? I've read the book. I've not Mm. seen the uh, the show, but I hear it's good. Not only is she experiencing burnout, I believe, but she's also dealing with the aftermath of birth trauma and postnatal depression. The other female protagonist in the show, Libby, would also make a great candidate as she navigates her own less catastrophic midlife crisis. Thank you for the show. Keep up the excellent work, Catriona. Thanks, Cat. And finally, from Len B., of Los Osos in California, he says, Hey guys, love the podcast. May I humbly recommend the following Paige and Henry never even heard of Paige and Henry. The two children featured in six seasons (gasps) of The Americans. Yes. Does this make sense now? Yes. I don't know the show at all. It's good. Okay. These are kids who grow up in a family of over-the-top secrets and dysfunction. Oh, this sounds right up our street, doesn't it? Evolving from all-American overachievers in different directions to become an admirer of FBI patriotism or a young woman dedicated to the communist world order. The struggles between mother and daughter compared to the need for a hero and the younger son. Family systems therapy meets political indoctrination. Identity crisis meets the children who grew up in the extreme hardships of post-war Russian society. Wow.
2: Just a thought, mm-hmm. says
1: B. Keep up the great work and thank you. That, I mean, that's it's a strong well. argument. Yeah, never even heard of the American. So I'm the first thing I'm going to do is look that up.
2: I really enjoyed it. Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, that sounds good like it's got good potential. Good shout, Len. You have Sasha's nod. Thanks a lot, guys. Please do continue to support us, and uh, if you don't already, then follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon. You know, wherever you go. To get your bits and bobs, and you can get all new episodes and tell your friends because it helps us to make more. And if you want to listen to Shrink the Box with none of the annoying ads with that guy on them <laughs> who sounds remarkably like me, remember to subscribe to Extra Takes because your subscription gets rid of that guy and gets Kermode and Mayo's take and access to their subscriber exclusive Extra episodes, which are awesome. You can start your free trial now by clicking Try Free at the top of the Shrink the Box show page on Apple Podcasts, or just by visiting extratakes.com in your browser. Thanks, as always, to our superb future award-winning production team. (laughs) Production management is Lily Hambly. The assistant producer is Bashak Ayrton. Social media is Jonathan Amieri. The studio mix engineer is Gulliver Tickle. Senior producer is Selena Reem and exec producer is Simon Poole. Thanks a lot, guys. Sasha, my favorite moment of the show <laughs> is when you reveal who the heck is going to be on the couch
2: next i really enjoyed talking about the siblings monica and ross in our friends episode and i thought yeah a bit different so i thought maybe we could do another pair of siblings and i'm very fond of david and alexis rose in schitt's creek oh yes Um, so yeah let's have a listen there are people here from the government (laughs) baby it's crazy people are just
0: like Leave
2: your finances to me, said son of a bitch. There's
1: a very small amount set aside for you, and one asset the government has allowed you to retain. The kids. The children are dependents, Moira.
0: You bought a small town in 1991. I bought that as a joke for my son. You
1: can live there for next to nothing until you get back on your feet.
0: Rolling shit. Oh, you're you're the uh, mayor we're supposed to meet. That's right, so if you're looking for a nasty kiss,
1: it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> David and Alexis Rose from Shit's Creek. What a great choice. So you've picked another sibling pair.
2: Yeah, well, I think that the way that they are so different um, is really interesting. And the way that they each respond to their exile is really interesting and how they interact with the community. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm really excited to look at uh, how they manage their 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 life in Shit's Creek. Mm,
1: I can't wait to get back to to, to watching as well. And I, 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 there's so many episodes I haven't seen. Just, you know, sometimes with comedies you don't feel yeah. the same dedication
2: yeah. as yeah. with a
1: drama to just watch every single episode. Yeah, you so I can
2: dip in and out. A yeah, bit more. I'm looking
1: forward to digging back in. It's 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 written and created by Dan and Eugene Levy, as I was saying, who played David and Johnny Rose. Dan said he was looking for a story of how someone lost a vast amount of money when. And he read about Oscar winning actress Kim Basinger, who paid twenty million dollars for a town in Georgia, hoping to develop it. And a few years later, all that was there was like a furniture store and a dentist's yeah. office and that was it. And the local post office guy said the town was deader than it had ever been. And five years later she sold it for nineteen million dollars less. Oh gosh. So buying a town and sort of forgetting about it was the inspiration for Shears Creek. It's incredible. Wow.
2: <laughs> amazing that people can actually do that
1: I know Well, that is, as we established in today's episode money yeah. can buy a lot of it things get
2: you anything it doesn't yeah. necessarily
1: make you cleverer
2: no or happier <laughs> but um, yeah and so we'll look at season one okay. and that's available on Netflix so do go and watch it is so worth it and mm. yeah see you next week
1: yeah see you then take care guys bye yeah. And here we go now with the credits for The White Lotus. The clips are taken from Season 2, written, directed and created by Mike White. First clip you heard where Tanya McQuad, Jennifer Coolidge, is scared of being murdered is from Episode 7, Arrivederci. Tanya explaining her perfect day out to Greg, John Grise, is from Episode 2, entitled Italian Dream. And when Tanya tells Portia, Hayley Lou Richardson, to get her shit together, is episode six, Abductions. That was a stressful episode. Oh,
2: God, yeah.
1: (gasps) The White Lotus is made by Homebox Office, better known as HBO. You can see it on Sky, uh, Now TV, HBO Max, or Apple TV. Thank you very much to HBO, by the way, for the kind use of the clips, and thank you out there for listening. We'll see you next week.